0: The answer
1: And a good morning to you. Thanks for joining us as we get underway at seven minutes after the hour of nine o'clock on this Tuesday. It's the ninth morning of the sixth month of the year of our Lord 2020 coming up because it is Tuesday. It's a good day for you. That means it's Kersenow Day. Peter Kersenow will educate and enlighten us uh, coming up at 1010 this morning. Peter is the only guest we have on the uh, calendar, which means plenty of time For your phone calls, as we roll on this morning, 216-901-0945. Save that number in your phone. That way you don't have to wait for me to say it whenever you've got something to say. You can also save 888-281-1110. Either one of those numbers will get you here. And I'm going to refrain from promoting the use of social media for the time being because social media is so toxic, polarizing, and quite frankly, it is Satan. Uh, and I know I've said that before, and it sounds like just, you know, uh, melodrama. It is not. I'm not being melodramatic. I'm not being hyperbolic either. I truly believe it is flat-out evil, and I'm ashamed to be, to be a part of it. So I will be a part of it to the extent that I must, but I will try not to promote it if I can avoid it. Unless, of course, I'm reading something that the president tweeted or uh, something of that nature. All right. Um, Democrats want to defund the police. Minneapolis City Council members, we started our program with this yesterday. The updates on this are these. The Minneapolis City Council has indeed pledged to defund the police. They have promised that they actually have a veto-proof majority to vote to defund the police and to essentially abolish police in that city. Democrats across the country support such a move from afar. Some Democrats on Capitol Hill support such a move, as well. Even though none of them are willing to answer the question, what would replace the police? How would anything be uh, secured? How would how would people, persons, property be safe from those bad actors? Meaning criminals, which exist in every society, in every city, in every small town, in a rural village. And in any thriving urban metropolis, uh, there are criminals. So unless at the same time a city votes to defund and abolish a police department, the citizenry also by referendum votes to uh, everybody be law abiding. They vote to not commit any more crimes so that there is not need a need for police. Unless there's a citywide referendum in which the majority wins and everybody agrees unanimously to do whatever the majority says, then you've got problems. Bottom line is there are some serious problems. And I say that, of course, all tongue in cheek, because you can imagine, literally, this is what many, not all, but many believe. That if you abolish police, crime will also be abolished. Crime will be, will be pledged or people, criminals will pledge not to commit any more crimes because there's no police. I mean, after all, where's the fun in that, right? Part of the fun of committing crimes is dodging police and seeing if you can get away with it. All of this is tongue in cheek because the idea is so ludicrous. But let me read to you. Minneapolis city council members formally announcing their commitment to ending the Minneapolis police department. And creating a new transformative model of public safety. Their statement reads Decades of police reform efforts have proved that the Minneapolis Police Department cannot be reformed and will never be accountable for its action. And by the way, I'll pause there just to point this out. Decades of police reform efforts? Do you know who has run the city of Minneapolis for decades? Liberal Democrats and oftentimes African Americans. That's right. African-American majority council, African-American, major- uh, African-American uh, mayors, African-American county commissioners, uh, liberal Democrat mayors, and on down the line. So if anybody has failed in providing the kind of police department that Minneapolis wants, it's liberal Democrats, FYI. Back to the statement. We are here today to begin the process of ending the Minneapolis Police Department. And creating a new transformative model for cultivating safety in our city. Have you ever heard such ridiculous language? What does that mean? Transformative model for cultivating safety in our city. What does that mean? What are you going to do when there is a phone call made to what was formerly 911 that says, Somebody just got shot. Somebody is robbing the local bank. Somebody is, is uh, uh, you know, there's a rape in progress. There is, you know, whatever violent crime that you can, that w- w- well, we're going to have a transformative model to cultivate safety in that situation. What does that mean? It goes on, we recognize that we don't have all the answers about what a police free future looks like, but our community does. We're committing to engaging with every willing community member in the city of Minneapolis over the next year to identify what safety looks like for everyone. We'll be taking intermediate steps towards ending the MPD through the budget process and other policy and budget decisions over the coming weeks and months. That's their official statement. Now a few questions for the Liberal Democrats... In Minneapolis and Liberal Democrats across the country who like the idea of what Minneapolis is doing Just a few questions number one will you lead by example? Minneapolis City Council members and elected officials and Order police that may patrol and guard your City Hall to stand down Will you Prominent liberal Democrats who support the defunding of police on Capitol Hill order your security details made up of either local or federal police officers, would you order them to stand down? In the interest of setting an example for the rest of us, will you order your Secret Service and or police anytime you go to an event, a town hall, Maybe you're a liberal Democrat in the House and you come back to your, uh, your district and you hold a town hall meeting because there's elections coming up and you're running for reelection. Are you going to order police to vacate the premises of your town hall? You don't want them around. You don't want their protection because you think they should be abolished. That's number one. Number two. What are you going to tell people to do in the event of a violent crime? You see, this is why people like me and other reasonable people like me, this is why we support cops, because we know that if there is a violent crime taking place right now, 99% of the people we call for help are going to say, heck no, I'm not coming over there, because they're afraid. You know who does come over there? The police. Because that's who we call when somebody is being beaten to within an inch of their life. That's who we call when there's a violent uh, episode of of domestic violence, for example. That's who we call when there's an active shooter in a building. That's who we call when there's a hostage situation. That's who we call when somebody has just stolen your car. Who are you going to call your neighbor? Hey, Stan, somebody just stole my car. Can you help me look for it? Sure. Where do you want to start? I don't know. We rely on the police to do the things that the rest of the population cannot and or are too afraid to do. So let's talk a little bit about what a police-free society looks like. Byron York in the Washington Examiner, in his daily memo, I think put this extraordinarily well. Does anyone know what defunding the police actually means? In its statement, the Minneapolis council members included a line that would be funny if the stakes weren't so high. I just read it to you. We recognize that we don't have all the answers about what a police-free future looks like, but our community does. Really? If so, then the community should tell the world because there seems to be great confusion about what a police-free future would look like. On Sunday night, the Associated Press, so two nights ago, published a story headlined when protesters Cry defund the police. What does it mean? And the article discussed some of the political factors at work. And it uh, quoted one anti-police group in Minneapolis talking about strategically reallocating resources, funding, and responsibility away from the police and toward community-based models of safety, support, and prevention. CNN published an article. There's a growing call to defund the police. Here's what it means. That was even less enlightening than the AP story, which asked, what does it mean? CNN says they know. Nobody seemed to discuss what seems like a very basic question. What would happen when a crime is committed? Say there was a murder, which happened 40 times in Minneapolis last year, 492 times in Chicago. Say there's an armed robbery. Or an aggravated assault. What happens then? Does a social worker get called to the scene? Do strategically reallocated resources solve that crime? Would a social worker want to go to a scene of a violent crime in process? Or in progress, rather. Would a social worker want to go and try to talk down and de-escalate the violence that's going on? Byron York continues, the public discussion has barely addressed that scenario, some version of which is guaranteed to happen multiple times on the first police-free day of the police-free future in any medium-sized or big city. But perhaps there's another expert who could be asked. As it turns out, some of the uh, present defund the police fervor stems from a 2017 book by a Brooklyn College uh, sociology professor named Alex Vitale. And just a few days ago, Vitale appeared on NPR. Where, thank goodness, he was asked about crime. NPR's Leah Donella asked, people asked the question, without police, what do you do when someone gets murdered? What do you do when someone's house gets robbed? What do, you do, what do you say to those people who have those concerned? And here's the problem. Even the expert who wrote the book, Alex Vitale, did not have an answer. Well, I'm certainly not talking about any kind of scenario where tomorrow someone just flips a switch and there are no police, he said. What I'm talking about is the systemic questioning of the specific roles that police currently undertake and attempting to develop evidence-based alternatives so that we can dial back our reliance upon them. And my feeling is that this encompasses actually the vast majority of what police do. We have better alternatives for them. So, in other words, no answer. (laughs) evidence-based alternatives so that we can dial back our reliance upon them no answer whatsoever he continued even if you take something like burglary a huge amount of burglary activity is driven by drug use and we need to completely rethink our approach to drugs so that the property crime is not the primary way that people access drugs we don't have any part of the country that has high-quality medical drug treatment on demand but we have policing on demand everywhere and it's not working so in other words The answer is, end the war on drugs, allow people to get their drugs free so that they don't have to steal from other people to get their drugs, then we don't have to rely on the police to come out to burglary calls. Is anybody else just having their mind blown by this mindset? Finally, Vitaly never addressed the serious crime question, the one about a murder, one about an aggravated assault in progress. That's important, isn't it? Looking over some of his other interviews, the author, who wrote the book about defunding and abolishing police, it's amazing how often the question of crime has not come up. But if momentum continues to grow for defunding police, and certainly if some bold municipality like Minneapolis tries it, people will want to know what happens if a government defunds the police police, and yet crime still happens. If criminals disagree with the Um, agreed upon, the widely agreed upon, no crime policy. Hey, everybody agrees not to commit crimes because we've agreed to abolish police. If some criminals disagree with that that idea and say, no, I'm going to continue committing my crimes, what now? These people are so short-sighted, it's embarrassing that they have any public voice or forum whatsoever, much less those who are sitting in elected offices. No forward thinking whatsoever about what to do when violence comes. We often say, a lot of us do anyway, the reason we respect and love the police is because when the bullets start flying, they run toward the gunfire to try to stop it. We, the rest of us, run away from it because we're afraid of it. What happens when we order those who run toward it to join us in running away from it? You think about that. We'll come right back on AM1420 The Answer. My- you, you see where I'm going here? You follow this? When somebody's being assaulted, when somebody is being beaten, when somebody is being robbed, when somebody is being raped, when somebody is being killed, when there's a shooter around, what do the human protective instincts in all of us tell us to do? Run. Get away from that dangerous situation so we're not next, right? That's what the human instinct tells us to do. Police officers put on that uniform. And that uniform helps them overcome their basic human protective instinct to flee. And it actually encourages them to find that inner strength that says, no, run toward the danger. I have to protect these people. It's the oath that I took. Now, are all police officers 100% of the time doing 100% of the right things? Clearly, as Minneapolis and the indefensible death of George Floyd proves, no. But let me ask you a question. Upon whom do you want to give the benefit of the doubt? Or not upon, but to whom do you want to give the benefit of the doubt? Because 99% of the police officers in this country are not Derek Chauvin. 99% of the police officers in this country are going to be the ones that overcome the basic human protective instinct to flee. And they're going to say, you guys take cover. We've got this. And they go into the bullets. They go into the danger zones. And that's why, sadly, we continue to bury police officers each and every year for being killed in the line of duty as they protect and serve the people who flee. What they are trying to create in Minneapolis and in other places is a, is a situation where there are no blue uniforms running into the line of fire. There are no blue uniforms saying, you take cover over there. We will take care of this, this, uh, this threat. They want the formerly blue clad officers to flee with everybody else. And what? Dr. Jones, psychologist to the criminals, is going to approach. Hey, can you put that down for a minute? Let's talk. Can you tell me about your childhood? What is it that happened in your earlier life that made you want to commit this rape that you're in the process of right now? Oh, wait. Can you put... Hold on just one second. Before you drive away in that stolen car, can you tell me a little bit about your parents? Is that what we're going to do? We're going to sociology and psychology... And psychiatry these people down off of their, uh, their criminal uh, uh, attempts? That That's what we're going to do? Pretty sure that the time for sociology or psychology or psychiatry or counseling or therapy is after the threat has been neutralized. The court systems have gotten involved, and then we can go to visit these people and send the uh, therapists into their cells. Two one six nine zero one zero nine four five. Let's take a phone call from Navy Man Norm in Strongsville on AM fourteen twenty the answer. Hello, Norm. How are you?
2: I'm wonderful, Bob. So when are we going to have the national holiday for uh, George Floyd the clerk? Because I think that's next, isn't it, on their agenda? It'll be a national holiday for George Floyd.
1: Based on the I mean- three memorial services they're having for this guy who, you know, and, and, you know, Norm, it's rough. Because we all agree. He was a murder victim. We all agree that what was done to him was completely indefensible and absolutely abhorrent and and terrible. But to turn him into you know, like some sort of a martyr-type figure as if he wasn't a career criminal who spent years and years and years in prison for drug and violent crimes um, is is a little bit odd to me. And they're holding all of these memorial services with elected officials and, and with, um, uh, you know, prominent citizens and celebrities and so on and so forth, all going to honor him as if his life was lived as some sort of a, you know, a saint. Uh, it is a little bit odd, isn't it?
2: Well, you know, Bob, I mean, every man who takes a gun and sticks it in the belly of a pregnant woman and threatens to kill her baby if she doesn't give him money, he, that should be canonized. Yeah. Hey, that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's they what we're to being told essentially.
1: Yeah, that know, was you know, and, I, and it's hard. It it is hard, though, Norm, because again, you know what he did didn't deserve the death penalty. All of those crimes that he oh, did time for, I agree. And yet he yet he was killed. So you know we have to keep in mind the fact that this guy was killed unjustly, uh, lawlessly, and horribly. Quite frankly, to be suffocated <laughs> right. to death in such a way over a f- period of eight and a half minutes. But yet, yeah, I mean, these agree. other things matter.
2: And every one of us agrees that that policeman should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And I haven't to talked to anybody, policeman or otherwise, who disagrees with that. So, you know, but you have this lynch mob mentality that no matter what, uh, you know, they they want to get their pound of flesh, you know, from the police, uh, forget innocent until proven guilty. I mean, these are the people that celebrated OJ's uh, uh, acquittal uh, with parties and all kinds of wonderful things. But, you know, when we get back to basics, I just watched a short clip of Morgan Freeman being interviewed about when do you think by uh, uh, one of the guys from CBS. I forget which one, but what do you think? think? I've
1: seen a number of Morgan Freeman interviews, Charlie Rose, Don Lemon, um, uh, Mike Wallace and several others.
2: Mike Wallace was the one. And he told Mike Wallace, when you stop calling me a black man and I stop calling you a white man. Right. That's exactly We're we're all men. You know, we don't have to, we don't need hyphenation anymore. You know, that hyphenation can go out the window. If everybody treated everybody like the good Lord said, love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, thy whole soul, and thy whole mind, and love thy neighbor as yourself. Two simple commandments. But yet, we step away
1: from it. Well, here's the thing, my friend. Here's the thing. And Norman, thanks for the phone call, Uh, as always. Here's the thing. There is a strong financial incentive to keeping the you're a white man, you're a black man part of our uh, society alive. Where Morgan Freeman's challenge to Mike Wallace, stop calling me a black man and I'll stop calling you a white man. We're just men. That's what reasonable people want. That's what I want. That's what so many people want. That's what Morgan Freeman wants. That's what Larry Elder wants. That's what a lot of people, black and white, want. But the forces that don't want that because there is profit to be made in the victimization, the victimhood status of minorities in America, that profit is too overwhelming for them to say, no, let's just end it all. We'll come right back after the news on AM 1420. We continue on AM 1420. The answer, don't forget, Peter Kirsten now comes your way at 1010. Peter's only with us for two segments today. Uh, oftentimes, Pete and I will go into the full of the 10 o'clock hour, the whole of it, but uh, not today. He'll be with us from 10 to 1030, and then uh, we'll have more calls from you. I want to read a quick uh, uh, tweet here. And again, I really don't want to p- promote social media right now because I, hate, I feel dirty. I feel really, really dirty uh, every time I do, but uh, I'm there, and I do use it for this show. And somebody named USA Patriot tweeted to me about what police do. Such a great point. He said, it's bigger, Bob. Who will investigate, develop a suspect, prepare the warrant and the affidavit, track it, arrest the suspect, prepare the case? And then there's the car accidents, the noise disturbances, the neighbor trouble, the dog bites, the fraud, the theft, the domestics, abuses, etc. Who's going to do all of that? And this person is exactly right because you know I'm sitting here being really, really, you know, superficial about this. If there's an active shooter, who are you going to call? You know, as if the crime, as if every crime that a cop encounters is in progress. That's just the way I kind of set it up, but that's obviously silly. Most crimes occur outside of the view of police officer eyes, so they've got to come and do the investigation, as the the, the email or a uh, Twitter says. Twitter user says. They've got to do an investigation, develop a suspect, canvass the neighborhood, search for clues, search for witnesses, search for cameras. And then once they figure out who it is, then they've got to go arrest them. And you know what happens when cops have to go arrest people that are suspects in violent crimes? Usually those suspects don't want to be arrested. They usually flee or evade or fight to stop themselves from being arrested. And whether they fight with fists or with knives, or most of the time with guns, who's going to go and get them if you abolish or defund the police departments to the point where they're non-existent? Who's going to go and solve the crimes after they've been committed? Rather than just catching them in progress, who's going to solve them after they've been committed, hold the people accountable, put them in prison, in order to stop them from victimizing the next person in that community? So thank you for the important point there. To whomever USA Patriot is, you're 100% correct. Those are things that nobody is even talking about in all of this abolish the police nonsense. Heather McDonald gets it. She wrote a terrific piece today um, that I read uh, this morning before I came on the air, headlined Why We Need the Police. Heather McDonald, of course, is an author, and she has written a couple of books about policing, including The Myth of the Racist Cop and um, uh, The War on Cops. Um, The people who live in high-crime neighborhoods, I'm going to give you a couple of excerpts from her piece. Um, Vulnerable New Yorkers, for example, she said, want more police presence, not less. They view officers as their only protection against predation or predators. What will activists seeking to defund the New York Police Department tell these law-abiding residents? That they're now on their own? And before I continue reading, Heather, (coughs) excuse me, The interesting part of that is the same people who are saying abolish the police are usually the same progressive leftists that are saying we need more gun control. Fewer guns in fewer hands will make us safer, they say. So on one hand, they're saying you don't get to have a gun to protect yourself. And then on the other hand, they're saying, by the way, you also don't get police officers to protect you. Yeah, that sounds like a wonderful, wonderful plan, doesn't it? The people who live in high-crime neighborhoods, writes Southern McDonald, understand more about policing than the anti-cop agitators. Since the early 1990s, when the homicide toll in New York City topped 2,000 per year, tens of thousands of lives have been saved thanks to the NYPD's highly responsive, data-driven process, uh, policing. rather. That policing model, known as CompStat, holds precinct commanders ruthlessly accountable for crime in their jurisdiction. It has driven homicide down 86% from 1990 to only 319 homicides in 2019. Most uh, officers, uh, I'm sorry, most of the lives saved by suppressing crime uh, since then have been black and Hispanic lives. In other words, policing proves that black lives matter. When police are allowed to do their jobs, they save black lives. Because black lives are the ones most at risk. But not according to the narrative that is going on right now, which is uh, at the hands of white people or white police officers. No, black lives are being saved from being snuffed out by other black people, particularly black males, to the tune of 94% of black lives, black homicides being uh, committed by other black people. So when cops are pulled back, black people die. That's just a fact. It's been proven time and time again. When cops pull back in consent decree cities, black people die. So if you truly are out there and you're woke, and you've got your black screen, meaning you've, you've made your um, profile picture on your Instagram account or your Twitter account or whatever, black, in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, if you are seriously pro-Black Lives Matter, then you must be enthusiastically pro-police because police save black lives. Thousands and thousands of times a year from the biggest threat that they face, which is not racist police officers or white people. At the same time, Heather writes, the department uh, has lowered crime to levels that would have been viewed as unimaginable three decades ago. It has radically cut its use of lethal force. The NYPD has among the lowest per capita rates of officer shootings among big city police departments nationwide. In 2018, the most recent year for which full data are available, NYPD recorded the lowest number of shooting incidents since records were first kept in 1971, just 35, and the lowest number of its suspects shot and killed, 5. Four of those were threatening police officers with guns or knives, and the fifth reported as being uh, armed by bystanders pointed what appeared to be a gun at the responding cops. New Yorkers who live in gang territory still fear lawlessness. However, and they implore the police to bring order to the streets. Now, again, this is just a simple racial demographic. It is not an accusation, and it is not a racist statement to point out that most of the people who live in gang territories, as described here, are African American minorities. So in other words, black people who live in gang territory territories in New York implore the police to come and bring order to their streets because they know they are in serious danger. At the 41st Precinct in the South Bronx, a while back, residents complained repeatedly about large groups of youth hanging out on corners. There's too much fighting, one woman said. There were more than 100 kids the other day. They beat on a girl about 14 years old. A middle-aged man asked, Why are they hanging out in crowds on the corners? No one does anything about it. Can't you arrest them for loitering? These citizens know that violence can erupt out of street chaos. And African Americans are asking for those young African Americans on the corners to be arrested for loitering. Because they know what's coming. You won't hear that at any of the Black Lives Matter rallies. You won't hear that on MSNBC or CNN. And if you do hear it on Fox, they'll scream Tucker Carlson's a racist. For pointing out truth, that black people are asking for cops to arrest other black people to save black people. That's a racist thing to say. A 2015 Quinnipiac poll found that 61% of the black voters in New York City wanted the police to issue summonses or make arrests in their neighborhood for quality of life offenses. Much more than white voters asked the same question. Back at the 41st Precinct, the president of a local mentoring program begged for a police watchtower in his neighborhood. Whenever he hears gunfire, he said, he runs toward the shooting, terrified that one of his three children has been struck. If the police go away, those law-abiding people will feel abandoned, and rightfully so. The claim that better-funded social services can deliver public safety is baseless. I'll add my own word to Heather's here and say that it's insane. New York City tried that experiment for decades, and it was a resounding failure. No city spent more on welfare, yet crime continued to rise. Only CompStat policing reversed the chronic lawlessness of New York. It is equally preposterous to say that social services are underfunded. The city spends a whopping $8.2 billion on social services, constituting more than 8% of the city's entire budget. And that sum does not include all the social workers larded through the Department of Education. Government workers cannot substitute for the two-parent family in teaching children discipline and self-control. When parents are absent in their children's lives, police are the second-best solution to crime. The only other one proven to work. Parenting is number one. Police is number two in solving and stopping crime. You understand that? And they won't abolish the police. Fewer cops and depleted NYPD funding means longer response times and less training. Cops who cannot get back up quickly when confronting a violently resisting suspect are more likely to escalate their own use of force. Officers are desperate for more hands-on tactical and de-escalation training. What they don't need is implicit bias training, which is an insult to their intelligence and their street knowledge. Supervisors should constantly emphasize the need for courtesy and respect. But police officers daily confront a degree of social breakdown that would be unimaginable to most of us, and yet they continue to believe in the good people of their community. The city should not let those people down by caving into anti-cop hysteria. It's Heather McDonald, um, Rick and Illyria is up on AM fourteen twenty. The answer, hello, Rick. Go right ahead. Hi, Bob.
3: Um, I want to start out by saying that I've never been in a union but my father was at an automaker. Okay. And so I know a a little bit about unions, and I support unions. But this is what I – I heard that this police officer that did this had 19 violations on his record. And so my question is, did the union back him in those 19 violations? And My dad was telling me that he, as a union member, saw a lot of times the unions would back people that should have been fired, and they would turn their back on people that made a mistake and should have been given a second chance.
1: 19 well, times this guy had a violation? No, no. For, let me clarify for you two things here, Rick. Number one, I don't know specifically um, what, you, what your dad was telling you about. They'll, they'll, they'll get the back of some people and then turn their back on people who should have been defended. I mean, every union is different. Every set of circumstances is different. The second thing is he did not have 19 violations. As I read it and understood it, he had 17 or 19 complaints against him. Those are not violations. A complaint can come from anybody for any reason, and it has to be logged. For example, if if I see you, um, I don't know, uh, mugging somebody, and I'm a cop, and I come, and I try to arrest you, and you punch me, and in response I punch you back and, and have to use physical force until I get you cuffed, you could file a complaint and say, this officer hit me. And I can say, you hit me first. And it doesn't change the fact that you made a complaint you said that i hit you and that's going to go on the record as a complaint filed against me and it's going to go on my record so anybody can make a complaint against an officer and say he did something wrong he profiled me he struck me he you know uh, violated my rights in some way it doesn't make it so those things are all then investigated and actions are taken or they're not so for my understanding he had seventeen, not nineteen, and they were complaints against him. Uh, and uh, I don't believe any of them actually resulted in uh, disciplinary action, except for maybe two letters of reprimand in his file, or reprimand rather in his file, but nothing that was criminal.
3: Well, if that's the case, then I stand corrected. Uh, but you know, if still there are times whenever you do see situations where they should be fired, and the unions will back them, and um... So, like I said, well, this that this particular case, case then, you know, Rick, just to, just to
1: throw it out there, yeah, this particular case is an example where I do not believe anybody in the Minneapolis Police Department Union is going to be backing or trying to save the job of Derek Chauvin. They fired him immediately. I don't think he had any union uh, defense, and obviously, he's going to go on trial now, and he's going to end up being convicted of murder. And thanks for the call, Rick. So, yeah, I mean, there are of course situations where you know if there's um, a credible doubt as to what is being alleged against an officer of course the unions are going to provide them with legal services that's what they pay union dues for uh, and that's what unions you know it's what teachers are in teachers unions for some student could claim that a teacher touched them inappropriately or that a teacher struck them with corporal punishment and you know they are entitled to uh, legal representation by the unions lawyers and that's how it's supposed to be. Now, if there's video evidence that something happened or if there's, you know, other overwhelming evidence, then obviously that gets very much limited and, and justice takes its course. But um, we just have to be careful how we word all of that. 952, right back after this. I've been for the of the devil 957. Got three minutes until cursing out time. Sorry, three minutes till the top of the hour news, and then cursing out time. Let's get another call in. It looks like I see my friend Khalid Namar on the pro, on the uh, phone lines. Let's bring Khalid onto the air. Khalid is a co-host of the Todd Allen Show that you hear on AM fourteen twenty The Answer on Sunday nights of, uh, at nine p.m. Khalid, how are you, my friend?
4: Uh, I am. I've not been all that good uh, in light of everything, Bob. I'll tell you. Um, even you know, though I've been listening to you, been listening to everyone, I've turned off the television for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't Smart think I've moves. been this sort of down in a while, not since 92 with the Rodney King stuff. And this is, mm-hmm. uh, that pales in comparison to what's going on now. Um, listening to the lefties talk about reimagining uh, the police department, as Kamala Harris said <laughs> the other day. Um, let's reimagine uh, a couple other things. Let's reimagine the media because this trash media has helped to get us to where we are today with the lies that they have been spewing for the past decade or two. They are responsible for a great deal of what we see because people are living through uh, 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 a prism of lies which affects their behavior. And I've been saying this forever. I've written on this forever. And now we see the culmination of what happens when people are lied to. Uh, Also, you want to talk about how media is selective in their uh, coverage of racism people don't know across the country in 13 cities that i've counted over the last several years asians have been targeted for robberies and beatings and home invasions by primarily black people over the last several years it's been covered in print media but never by national media and there's a reason for that because they never cover anything other than white perpetrator black victim stories that is a fact and i've written about it there's irrefutable proof of it thirdly jews were being attacked in new york city over the last six months primarily by black people and there was coverage of it in certain media sectors but it was never this mass coverage that you see now because again they only care about white perps or alleged white perps and black victims or alleged black victims that's how this media uh you know, brainwashes people. And then Sesame Street and CNN wants to have a talk to the kids. Well, let's have a talk to the kids while you're at it or they want to talk about racism. Let's talk about vandalism. Let's talk about theft, which most of them will engage in. Let's talk about uh, setting fires and destroying public property. Let's have a talk with the kids about that. There's a lot of things to talk to kids about. But this virtue signaling that this media does about, well, how to talk to your kids about racism. If you talk to your kids about obeying the law, as I and my best friend in the world, Dan Messina, do with our project, we go out and we talk to kids about respecting property rights and obeying the law and staying out of the system and being productive citizens. We do this, even though we're not always welcome. So let's have those talks, and perhaps we won't have more of what we've had. Uh, I am just disgusted, this media. Every day I have to tell them on Twitter that they're trash, because they are trash,
1: Khalid, I, uh, I don't want to take away from any of the important message you just shared by trying to overtalk it. So I'm going to let those words echo in the uh, ears of our listeners. And I say thank you so much for the phone call, my friend.
4: Thank you, my friend.
1: It is ten o'clock. Kirsten, now next. Am. 4-